we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, especially, sorry, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Thank you, Trevor, for reading. And uh, hello, everyone. It's really lovely to be with you again. Um, I will be heading off after this to get back to Narimba, but next week I'll be back with you once more, and I'm really looking forward to being able to stay tea next week. So uh, it'd be lovely to spend another week with you. Uh, one of the things I think that has been striking people is that to have been the most transparent about their own Christian faith have all times acted in ways that seem to be so inconsistent with that faith. I think for Christians, this has led to a real dilemma when standing at the ballot box. And I think for some in our community who are not Christians, it has probably deepened their scepticism towards Christianity and convinced them even more that Christianity has no place in public life. Now, not everyone will agree, perhaps, with the way I've just described things. And in any case, actually, for those of us who claim to be Christians, the more important question by far is actually whether or not the people around us see us acting in line with our own profession of Christian faith. But the whole thing does raise the question, how should we expect a Christian to live? Uh, What should we look for in the life of a person who claims to have trusted in Christ alone for their salvation? What does the spiritual life, as God defines it, look like in practice? What are its commitments? What are its habits? What is its posture towards others? What is its posture before God? Uh, The first half of Galatians 6 really gives us answers to a lot of these questions and it is important that we remember and we see just how vital this is to the argument of Galatians as a whole. Over the last couple of weeks we've been working with this framework which says that in response to the Galatians put up in the battle between two different gospels, the one they first heard from Paul, law free, circumcision free, peified, put right with God, by faith alone, in Christ alone, who gave himself for our salvation. And then the the other gospel, the non-gospel gospel that come to them more recently, saying unless a person is circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, they can't be saved. In response to these two different gospels, Paul's argument moves through these three different stages. In chapters 1 and 2, it's all personal and very experiential. Paul reflecting on his own life. In chapters 3 and 4, it's very propositional, really looking at the Old Testament. And then in chapters 5 and 6, it's very practical, it's ethical. And so these closing chapters aren't just kind of tacked on to the end of the book and we can take them or leave them depending how we feel. They're not something optional that we can throw in or leave out. They are integral to the gospel in the life of God's people. And so last week we heard Paul talk about how more and more we are to learn not to gratify the desires of the flesh, but instead we are to keep in step with the Spirit by continuing to trust in Christ. We are to live by the Spirit so that in increasing measure we might more and more bear the fruit of the Spirit. And yet still, up to this point, it's remained pretty general, hasn't it? Yes, 
uh, to use a, a very Australian phrase, the vibe of the thing has kind of been established for us, but not with heaps of detail on it. But that all changes at the start of chapter 6. And if you've got the outline there, you can see that I'm suggesting there are really four specific areas in which Paul fleshes out for us what the spiritual life looks like. And two of them have to do with our relationships with each other and two of them have to do with our posture before God. So the first has to do with our deep practical care of each other, beginning with matters of sin. And so chapter 6, verse 1, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, uh, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. What does it mean when Paul talks about someone being caught in a sin? And why is he now talking about the restoration of a person caught in sin, whereas last week we heard him list out the, the acts of the sinful nature and then he finished with that very solemn warning, anyone who does these things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. How does it all hold together? I think it's a great example of gospel realism. In other words, last week at the end of chapter 5, Paul was really talking about a person's settled way of life, their whole orientation, the way they walk, if you like, whether by the sinful nature, whether by the flesh, or whether by the spirit. But you see, since the flesh and the spirit desire what is contrary to one another, they're always in conflict with one another, Therefore, for the person who claims to follow Christ, but who has their settled way of life, their whole orientation, the way they walk, is living by the flesh without repentance, well, for them is the very stern warning of exclusion from the kingdom of God. But of course, even for those who, with God's help, are striving to live by the Spirit and to keep in step with the Spirit by trusting in Christ... Paul knows that while ever we live in these bodies in this age, the old sinful nature within will continue to be in conflict with the spirit of God within. And so for every believer, sin will continue to be a reality that has to be dealt with. Not sin as our settled and consistent orientation in life, that would be back at the warning of chapter 5, but sin perhaps as a result of error or of neglect or of a lack of vigilance or just a lack of readiness for the moment of temptation. Uh, perhaps out of character we see a brother or sister falling into drunkenness. Uh, maybe in a manner that is quite uncommon, we see them give in to a fit of rage or provoked to jealousy or sowing dissension. Uh, perhaps there is a momentary lapse in sexual purity. Well, now I think we're in the territory of Galatians 6.1. And in such a situation, the gospel trains us 
to have such a deep and practical care for each other as brothers and sisters in the family of God that, that those of us who are spiritual, by way, living by the Spirit and not caught in the sin, those of us who are spiritual will step in and gently call brother or sister to repentance, not for the sake of scoring spiritual points off them, but for the sake of restoring them to the life that is lived by the Spirit of God, to the life that is in step with the Spirit. And it must be done gently, and not least because gentleness is part of the fruit of the Spirit, but also because gentleness will reflect the kind of humility that recognises the capacity each one of us has to be tempted And if on this occasion we are the ones who are needing to restore them, perhaps another day will come when they are the ones who need to come and restore us. One of the ways I have tried to put this into practice over the years is that uh, when I've had occasion to speak with people about a matter of sin, um, uh, perhaps something I've raised with them or perhaps there's something they've raised with me, I've nearly always sought to share something honest about my own ongoing struggle with sin and my own hard work to try and grow in repentance and holiness. And I want to do that in part for my own sake, to keep me humble, in part for their sake, so that they don't ever imagine I'm in a different boat to them, but rather just alongside them, a fellow sinner who's striving to live daily in the grace of God. You see, there is to be this mutuality in our care for each other. There is to be a full reciprocity in our care for each other. And so Paul says in verse 2, carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. I don't think burdens here can be restricted to the matter of sin from verse 1. It feels to me like Paul is thinking much more generally here about any burden that we might go through in life, any trial that could come our way which makes difficult our perseverance in faith. Whether for us or for the people we care for and are responsible for, Uh, Maybe illness of mind or body, loneliness, grief, unemployment, poverty, uh, persecution, false accusation, discouragement, doubt, weakness. It can be any of these things and many more besides. But if any of us is affected by these things, then others of us are to quickly and willingly step in and help carry that load. Because in doing so, we will fulfil the law of Christ, which is undoubtedly a very provocative use of the word law, given everything else Paul has said in this letter. But if we must speak of law, let's at least get the right one, which is not the law of circumcision or even the law of Moses from Mount Sinai, but rather the law of Christ, which is love. 
This is the obligation we now have to one another. This is what we owe to one another now as brothers and sisters in the family of God. Love, deep, practical, serving each other for each other's good in word and deed. None of us is above this or beyond it. That kind of pride is a killer of Christian fellowship. And even more, it's diluted. Verse 3, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. See, the gospel trains us to regard ourselves with deep humility. Not to think of ourselves as something, but to be reminded that we are really nothing. We are unworthy and undeserving of God's grace. And yet still Christ loved us and gave himself for us. And since Christ loved us in this way, so we are now to love one another in this way. And so first of all, the spiritual life is marked by our deep practical care of each other. Second, the spiritual life is marked by humble self-assessment while we await the judgment of God. Uh, Verse 4, each one should test their own actions, then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each one should carry their own load. Perhaps it seems a bit contradictory that back in verse 2, Paul would speak about us bearing each other's burdens, and now he talks about us each carrying our own load. Maybe we've also got questions about how it is that Paul's now talking about a person having pride in themselves, kind of boasting in themselves, where We're so used to those attitudes being kind of sinful elsewhere. So how is Paul now saying that's what we ought to do? I think the key, though, is for us to realise that apart from the first sentence of verse 4, everything else Paul says in these two verses is about the future, not the present. If we put a different translation up on the screen, you'll see the kind of thing I mean. This is the ESV translation. And the underlined bits of that kind of future that I'm talking about. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbour. For each one will have to bear his own load. You see, once we realise that Paul is talking about the future, not the present, it's clear that what he's really thinking about here is the judgement of God that each one of us will face on the day we stand before Jesus. In other words, whatever attention is to be paid in verse 1 to the brother or sister who is caught in a sin, or even in verse 2 to the burdens that our brothers and sisters are carrying, there is also a sense in which, in view of the final judgment, at least as much attention again must be paid to ourselves to test our own work, to test our own way of life. Because, you see, on that last day as we stand before Christ, that's not going to be a moment for comparing ourselves to our neighbour. It's not going to be a moment for boasting in what our neighbour has done. No, it'll just be each one of us and the Lord in conversation with each other. And therefore, each one of us will be carrying our own load. And on that day, The only measure that will really count for anything at all is whether or not our trust in Christ has reflected itself as faith in love. That was earlier on in chapter 5. The only thing that will matter is whether we've so trusted in Christ that we're now keeping in step with the Spirit. That was last week. The only thing that will count is whether we've so trusted in Christ that 
We're now using our freedom not to indulge the sinful nature, but rather to serve one another in love. See, brothers and sisters, our life by the Spirit, if we are Christians, is not to be lived aimlessly or mindlessly. The spiritual life is not an unexamined life. It is a closely examined life. It's actually up to each one of us, humbly and soberly, to test our own actions and to test our own way of life and to test our own work. Because we are mindful of the coming judgment of God where we will stand there in conversation with the Lord, just ourselves. And so great humility as we keep self-examining. Third, the spiritual life is marked by a generous response to the teaching of the gospel word. Verse 6, Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. I suspect nevertheless is too strong a way to kick things off here. I don't think this is particularly a contrast to verses 4 and 5. It's really, I think, just another way that the spiritual life shows itself in practice. But essentially, Paul's talking about the way that God's people are to support and provide for their gospel teachers. Now, I'm very conscious that I speak on this verse as one whose entire livelihood is dependent on this gracious provision from the members of NCA Church. I'm very conscious of that. And so I hope you'll detect no self-interest in what I'm about to say. I also want to assure you that I, as well as every member of the ministry team, is also under the instruction of this verse. And so every one of us is committed to giving regularly to support the gospel ministry of NCA Church. But with that caveat out of the way, I think there's really two parts to what Paul is saying here. The first is that providing for gospel teachers is a reflection of the value that we place on gospel teaching. So here in this verse, it's not so much the pragmatism of, don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. Paul will use that argument in places, but that's not what he's doing here, really. This is rather a response to the fact that we ourselves receive instruction in the word. And so doubtless there are many good causes in the world and as each one of us has opportunity, we ought to consider supporting them as we have connection to them. There are things that Sarah and I support that have nothing to do with Christianity at all, but we have a connection to them and so we seek to support them as we have opportunity. That's entirely proper. But more than anything else... Christians are to provide for gospel teachers because, of course, gospel teaching is something that only gospel people will value. No one else is going to value the teaching of the gospel. Only gospel people value that because we understand that the only means by which people can be rescued from the present evil age is as they hear about and put their trust in Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins when he died on the cross. And when I talk about that, I don't just mean in that kind of evangelism moment, the the kind of missionary reaching unreached areas of the world, but even the established believers who need to continue to be protected in the gospel, just as Paul has had to do for the Galatians. They're protected from gospel error by keep being taught the gospel. And so in both senses of the word... 
But the second part of what Paul's saying, really, I think it reflects this mutuality that was back there in verses 1 and 2, that mutual love and care and provision that was in verses 1 and 2. Because this isn't an instruction about Christians just supporting the work of the gospel generally. No, it's much more specific than that. Paul is talking about the relationship between the one who is instructed and the one who is their instructor. Uh, many years ago, I was at church with a man who gave very generously for the work of the gospel in Africa. And I don't want to say a word against that. It was wonderful. But he very deliberately himself had decided not to give anything to the church where he himself regularly was instructed in the gospel. But that's the thing Paul is talking about here with the Galatians. He's talking about the two-way relationship of loving pastoral care and mutual obligation that exists between the one who is taught and the one who teaches them. He doesn't get into any details about how much we should give or how frequently or what method we should use. He's simply concerned that an important gospel relationship be expressed practically in mutual provision for one another. And so, brothers and sisters, if any of us and our families receives instruction in the word here at NCA Church but is not yet sharing uh, all good things with our instructor, Paul's word is for us. And in as much as I know that many of us are already following this instruction, let's continue to do what we have already begun because it is a mark of the Spirit. It's a mark of the fact that we are people shaped by the gospel. And then the final mark of the spiritual life, at least here in Galatians 6, 1 to 10, is uh, the tireless doing of good while awaiting our reward. Verse 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. I wonder whether some of us can read uh, verses like this and perhaps we start to get a little bit nervous. It sounds almost as if Paul is now talking in terms of salvation by works. You live this way and you, you destruction, you live this way, well, eternal life. Again, though, we need to see that really Paul is speaking in terms of the same fundamental contrast that we heard him use last week in the Fruit of the Spirit passage. So there's two ways to live. We can live in a way that is sowing to please the flesh or we can live in a way that is sowing to please the Spirit. Remember, flesh and spirit, they were the alternates. And since flesh and spirit desire what is contrary to each other, they're in conflict with each other constantly, therefore there are these two basic orientations in life. Now, most of you over the years have heard something through some of my sermons about how horticulturally challenged I am. But even I know that you don't plant pumpkin seeds and hope to get tomatoes and you don't get grumpy at the orange tree because it hasn't produced any apples. I mean, that's just, that's easy. I get that. And I can't do anything in the garden except kill things. Uh, in the same way, though, we just cannot think to live in this age in such a way as to please the flesh, but then maintain a hope in the age to come of being rewarded by the Spirit. They don't go together. God cannot be mocked. He's not fooled like that. On the flip side, though, we, we shouldn't be anxious. We shouldn't have any concern that we could live in this age in a way so as to please the Spirit and think that God may not notice it. 
He will notice. And so we are to live seeking to please the Spirit and we are to live seeking to keep in step with the Spirit, continuing to trust in Christ and let express itself in love. And so then what is Paul talking about here? What is the mark of this person who is sowing to please the Spirit? Verse 9, he brings it all home. Let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Now, of course, at this stage of COVID, um, weariness is something that we all relate to, isn't it? But somehow with God's help, spurred on by the example of Christ and strengthened by the Spirit and encouraged by the saints, here is a thing of which we are not to grow weary doing good. Now, Paul doesn't really spell out any particular examples of what this means. I suspect it's more of a posture than a to-do list. It's a kind of framework with which we go out into the world each week as we serve as Christ's disciples and we seek to serve others and we, we just, with God's help, we strive to be ready to do good in whatever form. But just as Paul has been teaching since the start of chapter 5, Christian freedom is never used to serve the self. Life by the Spirit is always outward looking. It's always for the good of others. And there's no boundary on this attitude that we are to take with us out into the world every week, having heard the word of God. As we have opportunity, we are to do good to all people. There's no boundary. Although there is a priority, which has run virtually the whole way through our passage today. Uh, because we are to do good especially to those who are brothers and sisters within the family of God. And that mutuality of care and love and service. Uh, no boundary, but priority. Now we still have one more passage to go in Galatians. We'll finish it all off next week. But even at this point, um, there's lots for us to take in just from these 10 verses. And remember, this is integral to the whole letter. This is the landing zone of what it looks like when you're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And so, friends, as we go out this week to love and serve the Lord, let me lead us in prayer. Will you join me as we pray together? Almighty God, you alone can order our unruly wills and passions. And so grant to us, your people, that we may love what you command and desire what you promise, so that among the many and varied changes of the world, our hearts may be surely fixed where true joys are to be found. And we pray this through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.